Healthcare moves fast. Today's disruptive capability is tomorrow's business as usual. Market Insights Live is a podcast presented by TripleTree, bringing together insight and perspective on the most pressing topics shaping the future of healthcare. Good morning, and welcome to Market Insights Live. My name is Michael Carroll, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at TripleTree. Today's session is focused on value-based care and the momentum experienced during COVID and perspectives about what's next. A reminder that the views and opinions expressed today are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the official position of TripleTree or TT Capital Partners. To begin today, I'd like to introduce our panelists. First, Carter Dredge, Lead Futurist from SSM Health. In his role, Carter is responsible for advancing SSM Health's research and development, innovation, and new venture activities. Carter, thanks for joining us. Next, I'd like to introduce Joe Delatore, Chief Executive Officer at Florida Medical Clinic. Joe has a proven track record of driving business and growth for the clinic, which remains a private independent physician group with over 350 providers. Joe, thanks for joining us this morning. Next, I'll introduce Dr. Stuart Baker, Executive Officer and President Emeritus at Navis. Stuart, who I've known for many years, is one of the co-founders of Navis, which is headquartered in St. Louis. Navis is a tech-enabled population health management services company that works with health plans, health systems, and physician organizations as they build and operate new population health strategies. Stuart, always good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. And finally, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Ryan Angle, partner at TT Capital Partners. In his role, Ryan co-leads TTCP and is focused on advancing healthcare by investing in healthcare technology and services companies. He has extensive experience collaborating with our portfolio companies and leading transactions as both an investor as well as an investment banker. Ryan, I'll turn things over to you to get today's conversation started. Great, thank you, Michael. And thank you to our panelists for joining and a warm welcome to everyone who's listening into this webinar. We are very excited to share our thoughts and views and engage our panelists on this very important topic of value-based care. Before we dig in, we're gonna just spend just a couple minutes grounding everyone on what we mean when we refer to value-based care. The chart and the pages that are in front of you have some important statistics on this move to value-based care. As many people listening may know, historically in the United States, hospitals were paid based on a fee-for-service model. This is detailed codings on every interaction that a patient may have within a care setting, and it sums to you know, these long bills that have you know, multiple pages and multiple you know, small charges that sum to one big charge. Um, and indeed, still about 39% of the payments in the US healthcare system are made in that manner. That's the upper left, uh, upper right-hand side of the um, pie chart you see on this page. Um, and starting about 10 or 15 years ago, there has been this shift. It started out more gradual and it's really only accelerated in the last several years towards no longer itemizing every single little charge within a healthcare interaction, but instead coming up with a way to pay those providers based on their clinical outcomes as well as cost performance. The first baby steps are captured in the upper left-hand chart of, uh, side of this pie chart, which is roughly 25% of payments 
have some sort of bonus associated with, again, taking some of the more baby steps towards reporting, towards being ready for um, setting up the infrastructure to receive alternative payment models. And again, that is still a large part of, of how um, uh, healthcare is reimbursed today. Continuing on this journey, in the lower right-hand side, you see 31% now have some element of pay for, for performance. And um, that's subcategorized as both paper for, you know, that's upside only for the appropriate care, as well as what is much more true value-based care of being um, upside and downside. The true holy grail of this shift to value-based care is captured in what still is a relatively small wedge in the reimbursement pie, which is the population-based payments. It's about 5% today. This includes things like condition-specific, and um, clinicians taking overall risk for the entire uh, health of a population. If you sum the upside downside from the, um, the alternative payment models in that 31% segment with the 5% in the true population-based payments, it's approximately 14.5%. That's really the grounding of, of what this industry looks like in terms of the true uh, upside downside shift to, um, to value-based care. Why do we say it's, a, it's at a tipping point? It's at a tipping point because this growth has really only accelerated. We're talking to three leaders that have been parts of organizations that are seeing this acceleration um, in their daily lives. Um, and, and really that growth in the wedges that are associated with alternative payment models and value-based care is coming at the expense of the traditional fee-for-service or the fee-for-service um, with just small um, upside uh, bonus payments. And, and just to close on this slide, you can see that 91% of payers across the US believe that alternative payment models will only increase in the future. You know, what are some of the challenges in moving into this value-based world? Um, you know, clearly healthcare is smartly taking the right steps and ensuring that the system is equipped to uh, enter into these value-based care arrangements. Um, it has been a journey. The page shows a number of those challenges that are experienced in moving into this value-based care setting. Um, I will just summarize the, the three big challenges that organizations face as being, number one, just internally aligning stakeholders, aligning uh, administration and clinicians, really getting these clinicians to adopt a new way of delivering care that, that is different than how they may have been trained and how they may have been experiencing or delivered care for several decades. And then secondly, there is a coordination of care element of ensuring that patients are at the right care setting and receiving care in the right, uh, right manner. And so that coordination of care requires data. So it's a little bit of a data plus coordination of care, just the challenges around ensuring that clinicians and, and administrators have the right data in order to make informed decisions. And then finally, uh, there are structural challenges. Um, you know, we have, are, exist in a marketplace where there's multiple payers and um, within a you know, given po patient population, you know, there's several different payers. There, there could be patients that are under different arrangements. So just the structural challenges of working into the workflow, how each of these different, you know, payers and the arrangements that, that one may have, that presents another challenge in sort of shifting into this uh, value-based care arrangement. Indeed, a large part of today's uh, conversation is going to be around how have these three industry leaders helped overcome these challenges. So what's next 
as well as what are the tailwinds behind this move to value-based care. Um, as I said, it's really only expected to accelerate. You can see that in the lower right-hand corner across all of the different payer groups. The industry expects that the amount of payments that are going to be reimbursed in value-based care models is only going to increase. And importantly, on Medicare Advantage and Medicare, the industry is expecting that 100% of those will have value-based care components um, as early as 2025. So with that as a backdrop, I'm really excited to shift into the actual conversation with um, these industry leaders. The um, first topic is just around you know, how um, the different perspectives that each of these individuals bring to the value-based care environment. And truly that um, has to do with where they sit in the environment. So um, let's just start by having each of you talk about your organization's role in healthcare and the maturity of your value-based care initiatives. Maybe let's start with you, Joe. All right, thank you. Hey, Ryan, thank you very much for uh, allowing us to participate on your panel. Really, really appreciate that. I'm Joe Delatore. I'm the Chief Executive Officer for Florida Medical Clinic. We are an independent multi-specialty group practice based in the Tampa Bay area in Florida. Um, again, I've got probably 40% primary care, 60% specialist, probably have uh, probably over 300,000 active patients in the practice. Um, so as far as value-based care, I mean, look, I, our, our group started back in 1993. Um, and even then I had uh, one, two providers in the group that were already full risk managed care MA uh, practices. We, we actually went through a little shift in 2007, 2008, and have been kind of moving down that, that path uh, since then. Today, we have about 100,000 lives. Uh, under val different value-based arrangements, probably 40,000 Medicare, probably 60,000 commercial lives. And inside those segments, we have every type of contract. So in other words, I have full risk percentage of premium contracts on the MA side. Um, and on the commercial side, I go to paper performance, but we also have you know, many ACO upside and downside arrangements on our commercial arrangements. That's great, thank you, Joe. Carter, how about uh, coming from the perspective of a large uh, health system? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. So uh, at SSM Health, where I'm the lead futurist and a member of the senior leadership team, uh, we have, you know, we're an $8 billion organization. We've got uh, 23 hospitals. We have hundreds of clinics. We own a health plan. So we do have that kind of integrated financing approach. It's, headquartered in Wisconsin, but we have been begun to expand that health plan to our other states. We also operate in Illinois and Oklahoma, so we're in, in four states. We also uh, own a, a fully transparent PBM that services the nation. And recently, Costco, uh, the large retailer wholesaler, uh, purchased the strategic minority of that PBM as we continue to look at pharmaceutical costs as it relates to total cost of care. So as it relates to value-based care, we are all in. <laughs> so we are, as a community provider, uh, we feel our role is to help kind of uh, coalesce multiple partners to this kind of broader objective, working both with physicians, other network partners, et cetera. And we are just really, uh, really anxious to keep moving towards these alternative payment models. Um, I will say one thing from our perspective, that's been very important uh, early on of engaging directly with our board. 
So these types of strategies require investment. They require intentionality. And very early on, we engage with our board, which is comprised of a lot of uh, very smart and uh, community-oriented people, people that come directly from the communities that we serve. And so their, their perspective about how we should continue to shape the future of healthcare is extremely relevant. And we've engaged with them that we actually have explicit goals for management to continue to progress, uh, to gain alternative payment model contracts that directly affect our performance as a management team. So we've taken it beyond just uh, hoping we'll get there. We've taken it beyond just passively going along with the trend. But as a system, uh, we have taken the, the step forward to lead that effort. So we are hoping those trends continue because we feel we can unlock value for patients, better care for them, lower cost for the community, and uh, truly, in a, in a grand sense, this does help alleviate some avoidable human suffering by us all working together in a better way. So we're very excited for the trend and hope to, to do it the best we can. That's great. Thank you, Carter. How about you, Stuart? Well, I, I really appreciate being here, Ryan. And you can see my life is pretty good since uh, we're partnered with these two terrific organizations, these two two great guys. Uh, Navis is a... Uh, is a technology-enabled population health services management company, but more importantly, uh, we, we view ourselves from a vision point of view as a physician-inspired movement that's purpose-built to fix healthcare for all, affordability, quality, access, and experience. So um, the, we're in uh, about to be in 10 states. We've got almost 4 million patients under, under management. Um, we. Uh, serve patients across all lines of business, uh, across all payers. Uh, we partner with physician organizations, as you can see, and health systems and payers as well. Spent a lot of time thinking about aligning physicians. Um, we think the secret is working with physicians as opposed to the other way around, not to or on physicians, and especially this relationship between primary care and specialists. Uh, and we're committed to value-based care education and, and development. So it's been an interesting journey. We, you know, we, we like to say uh, change, the impact of change is always overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. Just to give you an idea about that, I had the fortune, good fortune, you might say misfortune. Now, before 2002, CMS was not allowed to do any kind of value-based payment. Uh, I sat on an IOM committee in 2002 called Leadership by Example which really paved the way for CMS and all government healthcare programs, at that time 100 million people, a lot more than that now, to get in the business of acting as a, as a purchaser of healthcare. So 20 years, we've actually come a long way, uh, and I think that the pace is gonna increase even more. Yeah, that's great, Stuart. I liked how you touched on the, um, the ensuring physician alignment in your last answer, because that's the next topic that we're going to talk about, which is, you know, essentially the best laid strategies can fall apart if there isn't uh, sufficient alignment with all stakeholders. Um, and I think that's especially true in value-based care and, and shift to, to more value-based care uh, payment models. How have you all in your organization ensured alignment uh, between the objectives of the company and, and its administration and management uh, with those of the physicians? Uh, maybe we'll start with you again, Joe, um, on, that, on that topic. Uh, yeah, listen, I think, uh... You know, value-based care is anchored, you know, with with primary care to start with. And so when you look in our organization, 
you know, uh, our, our primary care doctors are very vested. I've, I mean, and in fact, I can divide them into two kind of categories. I can have my advanced value-based providers and I can have my value-based light providers. And, and, and it is a journey in all of this stuff. You have people that are at different levels. And so, you know, from a primary care perspective, they are really um, seeing the value and the benefit of what it can do to their practices, not only from a patient care perspective, from a workload perspective, from a profitability perspective. So, look, the, the primary care docs are very bought in. Our job right now is to help those, I'm going to call it value-based light doctors, advance to advanced doctors in that field, okay, or in that, you know, that, that arena. You know, the real challenge that I think uh, that any, and in a multi-specialty group practice is how do you fully engage a specialist, okay? Um, they have been educated, they hear about this, they learn about this. I can tell you, you know, in the older days, you know, you had the primary care doctors here and the big world, of, you know, scheme of life, and they had the specialists up here. Well, that situation is actually shifting, okay? And so the specialists are very in tune with what's going on, but they're, at least so far, predominantly still stuck in a fee-for-service environment. And so how do you fully engage them as you go through this transition and that's the things that we're working on with navis okay is how do you help me find ways to engage especially in some cases bundle payment is a really great approach because i mean look i think if i can get my specialist to be engaged and think like my primaries we'd make a lot more progress but that's kind of where we're at today in the process that's helpful joe carter what's your take on that yeah working with physicians is, is, is critical. In fact, having them lead out is really important. One of my uh, favorite things to do as you work with really progressive clinicians is to kind of say, all right, where do you feel you could practice even more how you would like, but the incentives are holding you back? Where are the areas of opportunity that you just can't get at? Because you have to make investments for those investments are not able to be recouped. And that really opens up the dialogue to value-based care not being something that's forced upon anybody, but it becomes an opportunity to enter into new areas of improvement. You know, a classic example there is when you talk with several of the physicians, primary care physicians can really engage in some of these prevention, chronic disease management activities that they are very well positioned to do. Uh, many of the specialists in the surgical areas, as they start to realize the variability in post-acute care utilization and cost, and they realize that through these value-based care models, they can make their cases far more efficient, not just in the OR, but throughout the entire episode. Um, it just becomes, it lights a fire, uh, I would say, in those that really want to push the envelope of what is possible to improve outcomes and reduce costs. And then a key role of, this, of the system is to kind of make some of these smart investments to make that as easy as possible. So if we know for, for any large system, you're gonna have a kind of a plurality of payers. You're gonna have Medicare, Medicaid, you'll have government, you'll have multiple commercial, um, so both managing government plans. But so when you're engaging with your physicians and their clinical teams, you can't give them like 15 different reports, right? You have to have a consolidated view. And for this, this is another, you know, um, 
as we went out to market and we've found our partners with, with Navis and others, we said, we need to create a consolidated pipeline. So as we roll up all the contracts and we consolidate all the various quality metrics, which we are accountable for, we need to surface that to the care teams in as seamless a fashion as possible so that we can provide a consistent care model. So to me, if we can really get and listen, big ears with the physicians of saying, where are your barriers? We go back, we can help build infrastructure that no individual practice or individual physician can do because of the large scale kind of complexity and investments required. But we bring those to bear to enable better clinical medicine that's driven by the physicians and accepted by the patients because then they end up having less quality issues, less bounce backs, readmissions, et cetera. It's a really virtuous cycle. And so that's how I see that we take that physician engagement and really uh, we let them lead wherever possible and facilitate that. Super. I think if I could maybe just add to that as well, I, I think that's exactly right. It's, it has to be physician led and you have to do that with uh, keeping in your mind how physicians practice. So it can't be different systems, different approaches, different methodologies based on payer. So, so the point I wanna make about that uh, is that um, there's a difference between these risk-based payment models that you nicely outlined, Brian, and uh, value and quality. So we all started as docs with the quality thing. Then the IOM talked about safe, timely, effective, efficient, patient-centered, equitable. That's that was all good, and that's that's quality. Then what happened? Now we talk about value in part because the healthcare dollar, as you know, Ryan, better than anybody else, is just going incredibly up, which is just unsustainable. So this idea of cost to the patient and appropriateness got added to that definition of quality. So I think, if, and, and, and I've not met a doctor who's not motivated by that. And, and so I think the, the challenge is to tap into that desire to deliver those things to your patients, tap into the power of working together so doctors are no longer working alone together, what I call, but rather are together. And then what Carter and Joe are doing, building a system around them that supports them forward. So no matter what the payment model of the day, if you deliver value, there has to be some aspect of that that will help you in the future, because that's where we're going. So that, that, I think the physician thing is critical. Great. Let's shift gears to talk about what happened to initiatives in value-based care uh, over the last 16 months with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, can folks just maybe share their experience in this period and, and whether they accelerated, decelerated, what that experience was like? I'll start with you, Carter. Sure. Great question, Ryan. Uh, it was a very dynamic time during COVID-19. Um, what I would say is, and let me first speak for SSM and then maybe uh, a little bit broader from some of the things that I've seen. Um, you know, I think all of us that had uh, significant acute footprints, um, there was a time where we really had to focus on uh, these acute respiratory uh, COVID patients, and that was critical at that task in hand. But I will tell you, there was some of those activities, our value-based care activities were the ones that were still going in the background. And the first full-scale launch, once we got out of that crisis mode, were these activities, period. Because, uh, so for us, because we see this as such a strategic trend, not as something that we're reacting to as like either a fad or something that we're trying to time the market, we're trying to lead in this initiative. So... It, we feel it's very much been accelerated. If you look at practices or other groups that are heavily focused on performance in these value-based care models and 
heavy and uh, alternative payment model contracts, they were accelerated by, um, by COVID. Uh, they had already adopted many digital mechanisms of engaging with patients. They had the ability to engage with patients in their homes. Um, and so this kind of digital forward movement that was really necessitated because of the requirements that we had with social distancing and everything else were accelerants for those that I think were already looking towards this type of trajectory. Um, in, in other cases, maybe if, if people hadn't decided or maybe I think there has been some reversion by some to say, we just got to kind of stick to what we know if we don't know we're going to do this journey. Uh, there's been some tendency, but I would say at large, for those that have really kind of seen where the direction is going, it's created an even greater intensity to get there sooner. It certainly has for us and our management team and for many of the other kind of progressive players that we've been talking with. It's been, okay, we thought we were putting the pedal to the metal before on value-based care. Uh, we, are, we are pushing even harder uh, to get there because we realize that's the kind of uh, stability that can, uh, can be better for our patients and our communities that when we have these types of crises, um, that's what we need to do. If there's people that can get taken care of in their homes or other alternative settings, we need to facilitate that. So I see it as a collective uh, pressure. And then one last comment is, well, even though it might take a while to realize some of the things that are driving these these uh, new payment models is this desire to uh, have a more sustainable total cost of care trend. And because of the collective costs that the business community and healthcare community incurred during COVID, those pressures did not subside. So uh, those underlying factors remain. So I think that will continue to put the uh, uh, wind in the sails for this type of direction. Joe, what has your experience been uh, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, look, I'd say as an independent group practice, okay, um, um, you know, dependent on cash flow, like many organizations, I mean, it was all hands on deck, okay, when, when COVID hit. Uh, I think our organization did a fantastic job managing. We, our leadership, our board did a great job. I think things that from an organizational perspective, I think everybody's, um, you know, felt the change is like, for example, Many meetings are doing exactly what we're doing right now. Everything's on Zoom uh, or some video platform. And we've gained a tremendous amount of efficiency doing that. And the physicians have really, really getting a little feedback from somebody, right? So, I mean, I mean, I mean, the physicians have loved it, okay? I mean, they're much more efficient. They can attend meetings better. So, I mean, learning to use, you know, video capabilities, advanced everything, telehealth, I don't, I mean, look, Obviously, we, we made a living on telehealth for a period of time, and then that's kind of scaled back a bit, but it's still there, which I think has been good. Um, another thing, too, is we've learned, uh, you know, you can have a workforce that works from home. Um, and, um, you know, I still have, you know, significant populations that are working from home. It kind of puts a little more pressure on management to make sure we have tools to make sure we're monitoring productivity. But those are systemic things that, that I mean, systematic things that we kind of you know, dealt with. Now, as far as value-based care, you know, the things I could comment is, look, if you happen to be in the MA business right now, uh, home run, okay? Everybody uh, did fantastically well, okay, if you were in that space, okay? If you were in the ACO, or, I mean, we were looking at our performance in our ACO, actually, to be honest with you, we saw a degradation of performance in the ACO, 
okay? Um, and, and so benchmarks have adjusted. You know, we had some spikes in utilization. You know, our bundle payment programs, we've seen, we saw some spikes in certain issues. So I would say MA was the big home run, okay? I'd say ACO and bundle payments, I don't know yet. We're still waiting to hear all the final results for 2020, but I will tell you a definitely a decrease in performance in those areas. Um, but, um, you know, that's for value-based care. And I don't have a great handle yet on commercial, okay, and how that all fared through there. But MA, big, big, big winner. ACO, degradation of some performance. Uh, benchmarks were adjusted because things, you know, you're high, you know, heavily dependent on that. And commercial, I don't, I don't have a great feel yet. No, I think, I think the reason Joe does, he, he describes it perfectly, his AMA business is more a capitated business. Think about that. So so those who, and this is true of all doctors, all over all systems, those who took a PMPM or a, or a, a capitated payment did great. But when it, the ACOs, whatever other mechanism you're in, where it was some modified fee for service, which you showed in your initial graph, didn't do so well, just like plain old fee for service didn't do so well. So the two other things I'd add to the good comments of my colleagues is that um, it's been called accidental systemness is kind of what evolved through this. These command centers that across, I can speak to SSM's experience not as well as, as Cardicam, but these command centers that looked at the distribution of COVID patients and managed that incredible acute attack on the delivery system evolved in many places and and uh, organizations flattened doctors got used to working together in a really unique way so i think there's some residual benefit of that and the other thing i'd say is that i think uh, uh, patients and consumers change so i mean all of us totally changed the way we bought uh, we, we we became omni-channel i think is the word these days and uh we're open to new and different things so i think all that's going to affect the expectations that people have not that it will remain at that level, but I think it will accelerate all the, some of the kinds of things we're we're doing. And of course, the inequity, which I know is something SSM is very concerned about in our communities, was exacerbated. So, so these are all things that we really have to think about that I think will persist past the COVID challenge. I think each of you touched on some of the key learnings uh, from your COVID experience. Um, but just be curious if there's anything else that, that maybe wasn't addressed as well as you know what do you think uh, uh longer term you know how is the industry going to react to what they've experienced for the last uh, 16 months you know specifically as it relates to this shift to value-based care uh, this is just a jump ball for the group anyone want to take it yeah well i i maybe i i just start the uh i i think the the requirement to integrate all of the things we do because people are going to come at it differently so telehealth yes but it's got to be integrated with everything else that we do the, the move to at home you know other other sites of care i think is really going to sort of uh, speed up as well so the, the, those are two things i think that will come from COVID and will persist i'm sure my colleagues have a whole mess of other ideas i mean i i, I would just add um look i think this whole concept of workforce from home Okay, I mean, we are all struggling right now in terms of finding qualified people to fill openings in our facilities. Okay, and you know, uh, it, this really did open the door, uh, in my opinion. Okay, uh, to really evaluate how work can get done in different types of settings. And I know it's not really tied to value-based care. Okay, but 
be honest with you, my entire value-based team, okay, is working from home, okay? I do have embedded care coordinators, but the reality of it is all my nurses, social workers, care coordinate, many of them are remote, okay? And, you know, the challenge is, is uh, you know, the workforce likes that, okay? Uh, they like that little flexibility, and the question in from an employer's perspective is, okay, if that's what we have to kind of meet to recruit the right people and attract the right people, you know, you got to start thinking a little bit about, you know, how are you going to be measuring productivity and how, you know, making sure that, you know, we are still getting the job done. So I, I think the whole workforce shift because of COVID and the shortage of staffing we got right now is has been an eye-opening experience. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree with these, these sentiments here. Uh, I think that, you know, anything that can be digitally augmented will continue to move. Just as a reference point during COVID, I think we accomplished our entire 2020 like telehealth agenda that was set as a goal by like mid-April or something like this. I mean, it was rapid cycle. And I think anything that we can do to continue to take the, the pressure off uh, the workforce, are, are, people have been working hard, very hard, very committed. I mean, I, I have stories that I, I almost get a little bit choked up about where we had we had nurses giving away their own shoes for people that were getting discharged and just basically had nothing. We had nurses come out of retirement. <clears throat> we had people who retired the first quarter of the year. And, you know, someone might have a mentality might be like, wow, they, hey, they dodged a bullet. And they came back and said, this is what I was like made for. Like, so instead of saying, hey, I guess I hang up the coat, people came back in for the fight and that's impressive and so we, we've got to figure out how to uh, kind of alleviate some of that stress because people have been working for a long time but I've always believed in the notion that people who don't care don't burn out the people that burn out are the people they just they really care they give to the point where they, it just matters so much to them so we've got to figure out a way to have a sustainable system for the people who care that much because the people who care that much are the ones that are going to figure it out. And so we just got to continue to remove those barriers. So I'm just uh, really inspired by the clinicians, the workforce, and everyone else. And I look at digitization. While it truly is a disruptive innovation, I mean, this can really be something to enable some of our most passionate individuals to accomplish what they want to. Hey, Ryan, we have a question from the audience. I think, Carter, it builds on your, your notion of disruptive innovation. So, you know, as you think about new technologies, new capabilities, disruptive innovation that changes a physician's training and or the, the, the care plan, how do those new treatment protocols fit into value-based care and kind of gain adoption is the first question. And then there's a, and maybe, Joe, it's for you particularly, is like how... How does that impact specialists um, who are trying new things? You know, so the example here was platement-rich plasma versus surgery in orthopedics. So who wants, I mean, Carter, maybe take the first one, and Joe, if you got perspective on how new capabilities impact specialists. Great, sure. Fantastic question, Michael. Um, the way I think about how new ideas work into the process, so if you see, I think about the current fee-for-service mentalities as 
there's there's a few barriers on innovation and articulate it as such. Every time you do a continuous process design, you have the ability to potentially take out processes that may not be value added. The problem is in a fee-for-service reimbursement model, some of those processes that you can take out actually have payment associated with them. So the more that you can kind of fix an umbrella uh, of this kind of aggregate payment, either in the form of a per member per month uh, arrangement or a shared savings agreement, it actually broadens the pool, broadens the scope of where you can innovate without financially harming the organization. And so I, it's actually quite freeing. So as you enter into a contract and you engage with the, the physicians and other clinicians to say, what do you want to accomplish? And you've just given them a bigger sandbox. You've given them a bigger sandbox to work in. And so how it specifically works is we have several clinical operations councils. We've learned from these command centers that, that Stuart talked about of how to disseminate this. We have the ability to do kind of daily process changes, weekly process changes. Typically now they, they come in the form of some structured communications and say, these are the way we're going to change this type of clinical practice. Uh, we did have to hire hardwire some of these things. I, I, I don't know the exact number, but it was like three or 400 systematic clinical practice changes during this intensity of, of COVID. So we have protocols which then get clinical sanctioning and clinical development. We have established committees that help make sure those are the, the, the best collective response. We have technology tools that make it the easy thing to do the right thing in the new way. And then we circle back and we say, how is it working? And we have an iterative process. We instituted something called a visual management system where when we walk into a unit or a department, or when we look collectively at a system, we have uh, we, we have these performance boards. Um, the fundamentally, you should know if you're winning or losing in you know 10 to 20 seconds. And we've used those just like we did for safety events to also implement value-based care protocols. And so, you know, we're reinventing where we have to, but leveraging existing innovation distribution techniques wherever possible. So. Hopefully that gives a little bit uh, more uh, kind of color to the to how it's done. That's great, thank you, Carter. Joe, any thoughts um, on that part of the second part of the question there? I, you're on mute. There you go. I, I mean, I think the question was kind of focused: is how does this disruptive things actually kind of affected the specialist? I think I think that's a second part of the question. Um, and that you know that's interesting. I mean, look, I I think the whole I, I'm not sure I had one <laughs> specialist using telehealth, okay? Uh, every one of them now has it to some degree within their practice. I'd like to see that, it, you know, continue to develop, especially in care coordination with the primary care doctors, okay? I mean, if you can access those specialists through telehealth in a rapid fashion and, and, and create more access, okay, um, I think the specialists you know, can have an even bigger effect uh, on on how we deliver care. You know, um, I think the other thing that's going to be a, a disruptor in the game, um, and this is it's the whole hospital to home concept. Okay, um, you know, 30%, at least what I'm understanding, 30% of all admissions that go into the hospital could be could be managed at home, and patients really like that. Uh, they they recover better uh, now. That's gonna you know again. 
that's going to change the entire working environment, you know, and especially for the specialists, they're now going to have to figure out, you know, how they're going to have to access those things. How are we going to create new care teams? How are we going to manage all those things? So that's going to be a big, in my opinion, disruptor as to how we do things. Um, but again, my first thoughts were, um, I think the hospital to home initiatives were accelerated through COVID. Okay. Because the hospitals at the time couldn't handle the volume. I think that's going to be, you know, something that's really going to take, you know, uh, flight here uh, uh, more aggressively and then trying to just use telehealth with the specialists. I think uh, uh, many of them are using it much more frequently than they ever did before. Yeah, I think, I, I think this whole specialist question of can I be innovative, what can I use, all this, the, um, the best practices that I've seen really involve having the specialists in a single area get together and decide what's the best practice. Because when you put 10 specialists together who haven't worked together before, the variation is dramatic. It depends on where they came from, what they were trained, you know, then all that sort of stuff, as you all know. And the opportunity to reduce that clinical variation by working together, the best groups I've seen do that constantly. I was with a group of 10 oncologists in, in New York State this week for dinner. And they, they, for the last 20 years, they've been able to keep their costs in the lower 10th percentile by working together and figuring out what to do, which doesn't necessarily mean doing the cheap thing. It just means doing the right thing and, and deciding together what they should do and then measuring, like Carter says, what the outcome is. So, so I think it, 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 it's an it's a incorrect idea that value-based payment is anti-specialist. In fact, it really is very much pro-specialty care, not so much pro-individual, but pro-together will do better than we can individually. And there'll be plenty of room for people to innovate and do things that are evidence-based or at least agreed to by colleagues. I, I totally agree. And I think that sentiment is really essential. You know, I, I spent a decade or so at Intermountain Healthcare and this example of collaboration is really important, maybe to make something really concrete. There was a group of orthopedists they got together by subdiscipline and they start tackling certain areas of variability. When we were initially looking at this, we were going to set a couple of defined annual goals of improvement. And the specialist came to us and said, just, just wait a second. Instead of pinning us into one goal for the year, like, let us just get together and let's just make it a process goal for a second. There were some critics that were like, they want a process goal, not an outcomes goal. Man, they were wrong. Because let me tell you what happened is they got together. They could solve some issues in weeks or a month and they don't burn a year. And so the fact that they're like, why would I burn a goal? Why would I burn a whole year on a goal if I could solve it in three to four weeks? And it happened from this collaboration. It happened from people getting together and sharing how they do things. And this is where back to the physician's ability to lead. Because then you're what you don't, data is important. But it's not abstract data. It's not, this is an artificial population and people have removed variation. No, these are your colleagues who also do complicated cases, who also have revisions in their mix. And this is what their actual outcomes are. And we don't take out all the outliers, but we look at what the true performance is. And when those discussions can happen collaboratively, the rate of improvement, honestly, goes a lot faster than like a static scorecard for an annual goal would actually dictate. So I, I think that is that principle of collaboration that Stuart mentioned. And as Joe mentioned about the adoption of new modalities when truly it's, it's needed, 
uh, we can move faster than we think as an industry. Faster and further, both. That's really incredible. Yeah, that's a perfect segue uh, into our next topic, which is uh, going to be data. Um, so let's shift gears, and um, we're going to do this in a lightning round format. And um, and basically, the setup for this question is, you know, we all know that healthcare data tends to be really fragmented. It's hard to get your hands on exactly what may be needed at a given time. Um, in one minute or less, you know, how have your organizations, you know, been able to overcome data challenges in order to move into this value-based um, uh, payment arrangements? especially considering a post-COVID world. So let's just do that lightning round format, real quick uh, answers. Maybe we start with you, Joe. Uh, one minute or less, I'd say uh, Navis, okay? Uh, obviously, they are a technology-enabled uh, you know, company that really looks at people, process, and technology. Um, they have evaluated in, in our project that we've worked together. I mean, all three of my major teams redesigned everything and, and then really looked at what data is actionable that we can get to the doctors and, and it really used technology to enable the people. So we're getting people to top a license and trying to be as efficient as possible to get this work done. Carter. Absolutely. When I think about data, claims really broad, not as deep. Clinical data, really deep, more narrow. Got to have a way to stitch the quilt together. And then not every specialty needs every form of data. Pick the two or three areas of variability that really matter so you don't like stumble over yourself of making endless drillable capabilities of all types of data for every single person. It's not needed. There's a few areas of data that are relevant across everyone. Make it scalable for the areas of other people make it directional and clinical practice as you start to see the variability the biggest issues don't change every day get the view improve the view and then iterate on it not thinking about getting again overburdened by the need because you don't need real-time data on every single aspect of your business just very quickly i just throw in the uh all the data systems and data are designed by the vendors and the data creators and they're not by the users so i think three things user design a lot of signal very little noise um and uh actionable and and don't boil the ocean hey ryan there's a question from um our audience around and it's really to the panelists around what are your best practices around prevention and proactive life management? So think, you know, social determinants of health, think about care in the community, you know, any words of wisdom on those topics? Who wants to go first? I need a doctor to go first, okay? Your thing, Stuart, okay? We're administrative people here. I'll rise to the occasion, but drop with my answer. The, um, you know, you know, it's a great question. As we all know that uh, social determinants determine 90 plus, well, 50 or 60% of health status for sure. Uh, and healthcare determines just about 10% of health status. So it's the right question. Uh, the problem is we physicians, and I'm not, uh, not, blame, not blamelessly, but I've not been trained about what to do about that. And we, we're good at telling people what's the matter with them and not helping them with what matters to them. So, so our view of that uh, and our partner's view of that is 
what one needs to do is get the doctors comfortable with identifying those issues, bringing them up, but then building an ecosystem that's community-based of expertise around uh, agencies and, and build practices that can help to solve those, whether it's behavioral health or social agencies or whatever. Uh, but getting the doctors comfortable with it enough to integrate it into their treatment plan and being able to refer somewhere so they know what to do. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's quite a journey though, it's a big hill to climb, but that, that's, that's the way we think about it. Very important point. And I would just add, if you think about it, uh, community involvement is essential. Um, coming up with new interventions is challenging, so trying to identify what existing groups and interventions already exist but might only be kind of embryonic in their development at this point. And just as like a health system, as we start to aggregate value-based contracts, we need to be all so willing, and we are very willing and interested in partnering with others in the community so that the benefits of those savings and all these kind of value-based arrangements can enable the community providers to do things they couldn't otherwise do. So we have a lot of uh, maybe smaller organizations that might be grant dependent, but they might have an amazing process and they already have existing relationships. We should definitely, as part of this value-based journey, not just look at the capabilities that we unlock at a health system or a traditional healthcare provider level. We need to think about how we flow those innovative benefits of an umbrella of total cost of care reduction benefits through the community, that they can also increase their uh, reach as we kind of achieve the goal. So it should flow uh, outward is my general sense. Do anything to add? No, I think they did a great job. <laughs> Let me just say one thing to build on Carter's, but we actually, with with a large blue plan in Hawaii, did exactly what Carter said. So in the, in the east half of the Big Island of Hawaii, we got to get well the the insurance uh, payer got together 35 community agencies serving about 200,000 people, and it was shocking. They didn't know anything about each other. They had no process to manage. They all did their own job great, but they didn't connect with each other. So there was no integrated journey for a patient in need or a, a, a person in need. And, and having them all come together, building a shared data system where you can share patient's information, uh, manage all that with the ED and the, and the, and the, the payer telling you, telling you who's high cost patient, might be homeless patient. Doing The health system and, and doctors can play a big role in that outward reach that Carter mentioned and bringing that together. And that should not be underestimated. And there are examples where that's really worked very well. Super, thank you. Uh, thank you all for that. Um, let's do our final question. We're gonna go back to a lightning round and we're gonna title this lightning round, uh, Words of Wisdom. Uh, we have uh, likely uh, executives uh, from both um, hospitals, health systems, as well as um, those that are trying to provide uh, software and services into um, the hospital and, and healthcare environment. And we'd just be curious what words of advice would um, each of you give to them of how these organizations can more quickly move or more effectively move into a value-based uh, care world. Since you passed the last time, Joe, I'm gonna start with you. Okay, I get the buck here, okay. So number one, I would say, and, and, and actually Carter brought this up at the very beginning, uh, you know, look, your board has to be on board, okay? I mean, your leadership, has to understand this. They have to be committed to this. And so there's a ton of education and things that have to occur at the board level. The second thing I think is, 
is you can't have a mandate that goes from the top down, okay? You're gonna have to get this done at the grassroots level. So board can set strategic direction, but the strategies and the tactics, I think really need to go down into your physician committees and let them decide how this is gonna happen or it's just not gonna happen. The third thing I would tell you is coaching, coaching, coaching. Physicians don't understand this stuff, especially if you're not here. And the best thing, if you can have a physician champion coaching other physicians on how to do this, I mean, those three things, board, you know, not top down, grassroots and coaching. That's a great answer. Carter? Absolutely, great, great comment, Joe. What I would say is number one, get skin in the game. <laughs> like if we wanna actually change, we need to have the incentive to do so. And so, you know, with a lot of people that we're talking about that are still only existing in upside only arrangements, nothing drives change like skin in the game. And so um, if you want your organizations to move, to Joe's point, get the board on board, get the grassroots, but make it material. We all know what it's like, what kind of activity happens when like a budget is missed? We need our organizations to feel a similar pressure when a PMPM goal is missed. If a PMPM goal is missed and no one bats an eye, the organization is not likely going to continue to achieve the pace that is required that we need to do. So get skin in the game. Second, don't underestimate the power and the importance of collective impact. It means if you're doing this entirely alone, you're likely spending too much and going too slow. Figure out who your partners are and get on it <laughs> because this is a fast game. And then lastly, what I would say is again, think about why we are doing this. For me, I found the most effective players at moving to value-based care are not coerced but they are truly committed to a better system. And they see the, like, the impediments and they see value-based care as a way for us to get better. So I would say in that case, it would be more of a positive acceptance than a, rather than more of a reluctant kind of like pushback. And I would just say, tie back, skin in the game, it'll move. Stuart, closing remarks. Very great comments. Three things, physicians, 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 physicians. Physicians have to lead this. I mean, there's no question about it. There's a whole science and art to that, but that's really critical. Second is focus on delivering value, which is really important. Access, affordability, experience, quality. No matter what the payment system, don't design the payment system, design to delivering value. And the last thing is what I often hear is that it's it's volume or value. Uh-uh. It's value-based performance driving volume-based success. And, and, and you can do that by getting better at what you do, expanding the number of people you take care of, and that's a great way to compete and to grow. So I think those three things are what I would add to the great comments already. Well, that concludes the panel. Thank you all for the rich discussion. Uh, Carter, Joe, and Stuart, congratulations on the tremendous progress that each of your organizations have made in this uh, shift to the value-based world. Uh, we look forward to continue to follow your, your company's success uh, going forward. And with that, I will turn it back over to my colleague, uh, Michael, to close us out.
Gentlemen, I'll add my thanks for participating today. Great discussion. There have been some questions out there around, will be a replay of today be available? Yes, uh, you can watch a replay of today's panel discussion at Triple Tree's website. You can also find a podcast on your favorite podcast channel. And a quick reminder that our final Market Insights live session actually happens next Tuesday. And back to Joe's earlier comment around value-based care starts with primary care. We're going to talk about primary care on Tuesday. And we hope to see you then. Have a great rest of the day and a good weekend. This concludes today's episode of Market Insights Live, presented by Triple Tree. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an advertisement for services offered by Triple Tree LLC or TTCP Management Services LLC or any of their affiliates, nor is it a solicitation to invest in any fund sponsored by TT Capital Partners. Forward-looking statements, predictions, and opinions are subject to change. As a healthcare merchant bank, Triple Tree and TT Capital Partners receive compensation from transactions and investments in the marketplace. As such, the firm's business activities could inform or shape the content shared in this podcast and may represent a conflict of interest. This podcast is copyrighted 2021, all rights reserved. Please join us next time to hear another important discussion about what's ahead in healthcare.